if you want to add some question, you can type it in uh, here in the chat. I'll read it out loud. So let's get started. This is Fundraising Radio, and today our guest speaker is Troy Zander, partner at Barnes & Thornburg LLP. And today we're going to talk about venture lending. What is it? How is it different from venture investing? How is it different from revenue-based funds, etc.? So, Troy, let's get started by you giving us some background on yourself and on Thornburg uh, LLP. Sure. Thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it. So, uh, as you said, my name is Troy Zander. I'm a partner at Barnes & Thornburg, which is an AMLA 100 firm, which means it's one of the largest uh, law firms in the United States by uh, headcount. Um, I'm the partner in charge of the San Diego office and the head of the firm's venture lending practice group. Uh, I've been practicing for 25 plus years. Uh, interestingly, perhaps for your audience and others, I began my practice as a Chapter 11 restructuring or bankruptcy lawyer and then transitioned through the bankruptcy practice into doing what I do now. And in very short uh, terms, uh, the summary uh, elevator pitch, as it were, is that I represent lenders, principally which lend to technology and life science companies, and the venture capital and private equity sponsors which support them. That's very interesting. It's it's a pretty interesting case. So can you give us a, a definition of what venture lending is? Yeah, so, so venture venture lending or venture debt is a type of financing arrangement which is typically provided or traditionally provided to uh, early and growth stage, but certainly to more mature uh, venture-backed and even private companies. Um, venture lending or venture debt is distinct from venture capital, which is the, I call it the equity side of the ledger, in that venture debt, venture lending is on the debt side of the ledger, meaning in very simple terms, that the provider of the venture debt expects to be repaid, whereas the venture capital investors or the investor set which provide venture capital are looking really for a return on investment. So they provide equity, which is at what we call the bottom of the stack. Venture lenders or venture debt providers provide debt which they expect to be repaid uh, with a coupon, with interest, but not the kind of returns that venture capital firms are looking for but which importantly gets paid at what we call the top of the stack. And we can talk more about that. as we move Right. On. Absolutely. We'll definitely go into this a bit later on. First, I would like to touch on to uh, how is it different from revenue-based funds? Because it seems like revenue-based funds are doing basically the same exact thing. Do, is there any difference between revenue-based funds, investments, and venture lending? Well, so I would describe a revenue-based fund, if we're thinking about that the same way, uh, as really kind of a subset of venture lenders. So venture lenders come in a couple of varieties. They're either a bank, uh, and you'd know the names. There's uh, Bridge Bank, there's Square One or Pacific Western Bank, there's Silicon Valley Bank, America Bank from time to time, et cetera. So banks on the one hand. And then there are what we call venture lenders, which are non-bank or oftentimes non-bank or fund-based lenders. Um, it's important for your audience, certainly the, the fundraising part of your audience, to appreciate that one size is not created equal. That is, that banks and non-bank lenders um, think about and price, for example, their product differently. So whereas with a bank, 
there might be a lower cost of capital. That is the, the price to the borrower to borrow the venture debt is less expensive than with a non-bank lender. Uh, the non-bank lender is more expensive, obviously, and, the, and each might have different terms. A revenue-based lender typically is a lender that is a non-bank lender. Um, those are more frequently, at least in my experience, on the life science side of the house, remembering that as I described it, I represent lenders that lend to technology companies on the one hand and life science or sometimes considered healthcare and life science lenders on the other. Those two can be distinctly different. The approaches that each of a bank and a non-regulated lender take to a technology company might be different than a life science company. Revenue-based lenders, typically in the life science space, are looking at a a life science or a healthcare company, which is already revenue uh, producing, has some valuable, usually licensed or, and certainly intellectual property transactions, which they can then leverage. That is, that lender mm -hmm. looks to the value of the licensing transaction as a source of revenue. I think that's what you're thinking about when you talk about revenue-based. Definitely. Uh, so it, it is a subset of venture lending for sure. It's its own unique uh, beast or animal. And there are uh, really a handful, maybe a couple handfuls of lenders who specialize in that, uh, but not uh, not all venture lenders are revenue-based lenders in that sense. Got it. So before we get into a bit of a legal side of this question, I was curious, who should consider the venture lending? You've mentioned that uh, they usually uh, invest in uh, more mature companies, so not startups. I've heard of practices where companies were using their equity as collateral for uh, debt financing. Do you think, at which level do you think a startup is qualified to do this sort of transaction? Yeah, it's a good question. So, and, and it's important to think about the question in the context of the uses of venture debt or when to raise venture debt. That is, what is the purpose that the company is looking for in connection with raising venture debt? Traditionally, I would tell you 20 years ago or so, when this was a relatively new phenomenon, um, I would tell you that the venture lenders, and at that time it was really a couple of banks and, and maybe WTI, uh, really did what I call, and no offense to them, they followed the smart money. That is, as soon as a company raised its initial or subsequent round of equity financing, uh, it would then follow on with a venture debt uh, round immediately following. Um, and from the bank's perspective at that time, it made perfect sense. Um, while these companies generally are pre-revenue and certainly therefore pre-profit, they're at their most bankable, quote unquote bankable, um, when they've raised a whole bunch of equity. Mm -hmm. The corollary too is that the banks like the companies when they raise equity, because now of course they can put those deposits, the equity that they've raised in the venture capital financing into the bank, allowing the bank to make money off of those deposits, relend them, et cetera, et cetera. So it is still the case that oftentimes a company can raise venture debt or is best positioned to raise venture debt in connection with an equity raise uh, between equity rounds. That is they've raised their, their series A or B and the series C is down the road. And in between, they sort of bridge the gap between the equity rounds with venture debt. Um, equity, uh, venture debt rather, can be used uh, to, for example, to fund 
capital expenditures in, the, in connection with a venture debt financing that looks much more like an equipment kind of arrangement um, to, uh, to, to, to pretty up the balance sheet, right? So sometimes a more mature company, um, as it's looking to go public, when companies used to go public a month ago, uh, would raise venture debt to pretty up the balance sheet and to put them into a more favorable position for the capital markets. Uh, and then also to, to fund other kinds of projects like acceleration of the business, which might come in the form of a media campaign or an acquisition, right. uh, et cetera. So the company really needs to think about what is the, and its investors that sit around the table, what is the company looking to accomplish in terms of when is the best time to raise venture debt? That's interesting. So uh, we'll talk about when is the time to raise the venture debt a bit later on. First, I wanted to discuss this uh, fear of, I think, every founder is that when they're raising money through debt financing, they're afraid that they one month they just have a bad month or a bad quarter and they just can't pay it off. And then they lose a big chunk of their company, uh, not probably bankruptcy, but they will have to give it out because of a default on the on the debt that they took. Do you think it's a reasonable fear or do you think banks are so flexible now that they can avoid that? Um, uh, yes, <laughs> the, the, the latter, right? So, so look, I always tell the, the lenders with, with whom I work and, and again, given my background as what I call a recovering bankruptcy lawyer, uh, uh, that the, the bankruptcy is the worst case scenario. And by the way, I, I counsel companies as well as they're negotiating with their venture lenders, whatever they may look like, of course, as long as it's not one of my clients, I don't get into conflict um, situations. But, but the point is the same, whether I'm talking to both, to either a borrower or a lender, and that is, look, the lender doesn't want your assets. Uh, the lender recognizes every early stage company is going to be off plan. That's the nature of early stage uh, and growing companies. Project a plan which may or may not come to fruition or for other reasons, they're just simply off plan. Um, that means that the, the lender has to be flexible with the borrower. So, it doesn't mean that they're going to walk away the lender from their rights when a borrower defaults on the loan. And the worst case scenario, as you described, is sure there might be a bankruptcy or there might be a foreclosure by the lender on the assets. But more often than not, and certainly these days, and, and while this podcast will live on, I'm sure your listeners will appreciate looking at the date of the podcast that we're in the middle, maybe we're at the tail end, but we're certainly suffering from the COVID-19 crisis that is having a unique impact, unique even from the 08, 09 financial crisis um, on the capital markets, on borrowers' ability to repay. And, and in particular, in response to your question, lenders appreciate that nobody did anything wrong. This is a healthcare crisis, which is leading to a financial crisis. And if I'm right, that the lenders want, a want the borrower's assets, they're going to be and they're going to have to be more flexible as borrowers hit negative inflection points, default on their loans, et cetera, et cetera, in terms of helping to restructure rather than simply shut down. Mm -hmm. I think Troy disconnected. 
I'm still here. Can you hear me? Oh, oh, okay, okay. So you were <laughs> sorry for that. <laughs> okay. Um, so um, then I would like to move on to the common pitfalls uh, that founders make during debt financing. So I imagine that most people who use uh, debt financing, they're already pre-experienced in the financial field. They have advisors, etc. But I imagine that many earlier stage founders do some sort of mistakes in that field. Can can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. And, and let me and let me um, step back and tell you um, uh, what I consider to be sort of key lender venture lender considerations in connection with the the making of a venture debt loan, uh, because I think that that will help help to sort of level set around. Uh, and get us to the to, to answer your question. Okay, so so most venture lenders, especially with respect to earlier or growth stage, as opposed to more mature and public companies for sure, are going to look principally at at three uh, three items. And this is just in my experience; it's anecdotal. I'm I'm guessing that if you spoke to a venture lender uh, directly, they might say, "Yeah, that's exactly right," or or not quite, or or whatever. But in my experience. A venture lender really is going to look to first and foremost the investor sitting around the table. Obviously, that's different if it's if a, a company is entirely bootstrapped and they're they're financed by uh, uh, friends and family, um, etc. But certainly, with respect to institutional um, investors, the venture lender gets some comfort around providing venture debt into a company based in part, and I would say first and foremost, upon the investors around the table and those investors track record with other companies. That's number one. Number two is the management team. Uh, how well is the management team known either to this lender or to the contact set of the lender? Um, obviously, the, the venture investors sitting around the table have something to say about management and would be there, would or would not be there in part based upon the strength of the management team. And so the venture lender also looks to the investor's reaction to the management team. But of course, the venture lender might have its own independent experience with that management team as they performed in other companies. As you know, uh, oftentimes the uh, growth stage and, and early stage and more maturing tech and life science companies are populated by serial entrepreneurs. And so they bring with them to each new venture uh, their track record. So first, those those venture lenders are going to look to the investors sitting around the table, then to the management team and their respective track record. And I would suggest to you, third, the venture lender looks to the product or service that that uh, is is offering. Right. And so again, investors, then management team, then product or service. It's rare in my experience that a venture lender says, "Gosh, you know, this product." Even thinking about Uber or Square or you know fill in the name of your now high flying well known but once early stage tech company based upon their product or service but rather the investors sitting around the table. Um, so so uh, what are some of the common mistakes you ask that that founders make around venture debt? Well, here's what I would tell you. First is is the, the company has to consider: Do I need the money? Right. And for what purposes? We talked about some common uses of venture debt. Um, what's really the purpose of my, uh, my my need for venture debt? Sometimes it's simply just extending runway. 
right? I've got, I'm in between equity rounds as we described. And so I need to kind of stretch out my cash, but importantly, I don't want to give up additional dilution, right? So one of the key differences between venture capital on the one hand, equity, and venture debt on the other is that venture debt is not dilutive to the company. So a, a company finds venture debt in this respect versus venture capital attractive because it doesn't require the company, the founders, to give up more of their equity interest and hence their control uh, in the company. Um, one mistake a company can make is taking on too much venture equity, right, venture capital, hence giving up more control than it needs to. Now, oftentimes it doesn't get to dictate terms of the venture capital raise. And so that's just something that comes with it. Uh, but one of the mistakes that a company can make is in negotiating uh, either the size or the use of the venture lending, right? I don't need 10 million, I only need $5 million. Mm -hmm. uh, because again, keeping in mind that the venture lender expects to get repaid, venture capital is looking for a return on investment. So the company has to be careful about not getting too far over its skis. Now, look, oftentimes the investors sitting around the table are going to say to management or themselves as the board are going to determine, we don't need, in my example, 10 million, we need $5 million. And so hopefully the management team has guardrails around it and their decision-making in the form of that investor set sitting around the table. Right. So here I want to move on to the topic that's probably even more relatable to my listeners as most of them are actually early stage founders. So have you ever seen uh, early stage startup? So as early as C stage, have you ever seen it raise uh, venture lending financing? I mean, venture debt. So the, the short answer is yes. Uh, the longer answer is for the really, really early stage, the seed stage companies, it's challenging to raise uh, venture debt uh, in part because, as I suggested, that you know venture debt is often used to extend runway. And we think about extending runway in part as a bridge between equity, equity rounds. Now, I would also tell you, though, however, uh, especially as times are changing, that even some venture capital firms will provide a hybrid version of venture debt. We wouldn't ordinarily think about it as venture debt per se, but even bridging the timing between rounds in the form of a venture capital provider and an otherwise equity provider providing a, a debt instrument to a company to bridge the timing between the last and the next equity round. So it's not traditional venture lending or venture debt as we think about it and as we've been talking about it but they might have an investor sitting around the table that understands the timing between this last round and that next round and provide a debt instrument. The company needs to be aware, however, as we've talked about, that the venture debt uh, brings about a coupon, right? So it has an interest rate attached to it. It might have other terms and conditions, financial covenants, for example, not always, but sometimes. Um, and more importantly, or most importantly, the lender providing it in whatever form, even if it's a venture capital firm, expects that debt to get repaid and to get repaid ahead of other creditors. Mm -hmm. So yes, yes, a very early stage company can take on venture debt, not typically the traditional form of venture debt. 
Got it. So here, let's talk a little bit about angel investing. Uh, have you ever, are you doing angel investments yourself since you were so much involved in the uh, venture lending, venture debt? Have you ever done angel investing? Here too, the, the short answer is yes. The longer answer is, is, is perhaps less so than other firms which have uh, access to angel opportunities. Uh, my firm, like most, I suspect, requires that when I am provided an opportunity to invest, I have to first bring it to my firm. And if my firm declines or if my firm permits me to make my own investment in a particular company, I am provided the opportunity to and then can decide for myself. Am, am I sitting on a fund um, you know, allocated to clients or contacts for purposes of angel investment? Not really. Uh, the irony in, in lawyering is that while, in my experience, we lawyers are great at managing and navigating others' conflicts and business challenges and business opportunities, we're not very good at doing that for ourselves. Um, so I, I like to be careful, too, because I like to be careful about not creating conflicts of interest. If I'm investing in my own uh, clients, uh, I've, I've built in a, a conflict and I can be uh, blinded by that personal opportunity. So I like to be careful about making angel investments. Have I been offered opportunities and have I made those kinds of investments? Yes, I have. Do I do it as a regular matter? No, I do not. That's a great answer, really precise, specific, and straight to the point. I love it. So let's talk a little bit about your angel investments. Have you, you've done some, as I understand, what do you like to see on the pitch deck? What do you think are the three must-have points on the pitch deck? Well, and thanks for asking. I mean, look, uh, clear and concise uh, and uh, designed to solve a problem, right? So every pitch deck and first and foremost, every executive summary um, needs to identify the challenge, the problem that's going to be addressed, um, the solution, the market opportunity, and why this product or service is different than everything else that's out there. There was a time in the pre you know, COVID-19 era where there was talk among uh, angels and VCs more broadly, stay away from the Uber for blank, right? The, the sort of designated service or the on-demand service for X. Now I would suspect, ironically enough, that with stay-at-home orders in place, et cetera, et cetera, Instacart, for example, is a great example, not without its challenges, where on-demand service are all the rage. And frankly, at some in some respects, uh, a necessity. For me, my, my both angel investing and investing more broadly, for example, through my, you know, the sort of cash invested portion of my retirement plan, I like to select companies that resonate with me. Um, I don't mean to sound like a jerk or worse, but I drive a Tesla uh, really for a whole bunch of reasons. I love the design of the car, but I also love the what it does for the environment. And, and, and so I have a small investment in Tesla, very small, by the way, apparently not big enough, but that's a product that resonates with me. Um, I enjoy Apple products. I have a small investment in Apple. Uh, I use Visa and MasterCard all the time. I have small investments in Visa and MasterCard. I'm not here to provide stock tips. What I'm suggesting is that uh, angel investors need to, like all investors and like venture debt providers, what I call stick to their knitting. That is the opportunity has to have some resonance with the investor, I believe, 
in part for the founder too to appreciate that the investors sitting around the table are committed to what they're trying to accomplish. Good. That's that's a decent answer. I like it. So let's talk a little bit about. Actually, we have a question from the audience, so I'll just read it out loud. So, uh, question from Sunil: There are different types of defaults, which range from being late on payments to complete inability to repay. Furthermore, technology companies often lack collateral. With high quality investors, good management team, and good product, how often are the worst defaults seen? Second, what is the range of typical interest rates for companies at the Series A and B level? That's the, both of those questions are great. So let's talk about that. Yeah, so look, the, the, the question is exactly right. There are different types of defaults, uh, not just uh, late on payments and complete ability to repay, but there are also what we sometimes call footfalls. That is the venture lending documents contain, for example, reporting provisions. You have to deliver your compliance certificate, a certificate which attests to the ongoing compliance with the terms of the venture loan documents, for example, every 30 days, the failure to timely deliver that compliance certificate uh, is a default. It might be a footfall, but it is a default. And that's an example of a default which doesn't even approach late payment or complete ability to repay. Um, but but let's talk about that for just a moment. So, so uh, as I mentioned, especially these days in the, in the light of COVID-19, um, there are lots of defaults, payment defaults, complete ability to repay as the, as the listener suggests. And oh, by the way, reporting defaults like the foot fault I described in part because management is really busy trying to shore up the business and make sure that it's doing everything it needs to do to not just continue to perform on the venture loan documents, but perform its business, right? Uh, generate revenue and, and maybe even generate some profit. Um, but the point that I made is that the lender doesn't want the assets. So the lenders recognize that there are going to be defaults and the lender recognizes that it's gonna need to work with the company to ensure that it has a performing asset going forward, that the loan continues to remain in effect. Now look, Sometimes you're going to get to a worst case scenario and your, your listener asks about a complete inability to repay. Mm-hmm. Hopefully there's been some dialogue. Look, I, I'm a big believer in communication. I would tell your listeners, whether they're early stage founders uh, or, or you know more uh, uh, established venture lenders in the community, the key to successful relationships and to ensuring a performing loan on both sides of that table is open and honest communication. And the worst thing I think that a company can do is pretend that it isn't hitting a negative inflection point, hide the ball, not be in communication with its lender about its current financial fiscal situation and just wait until the reporting period comes and then report that they're in default. Why? Because they need the the, the early stage uh, founder needs the capital provider, whether the venture debt provider or its equity provider sitting around the table as a business partner. And no business partner is willing to stretch for a founder if they think the founder isn't being honest and open and direct and communicative on a timely basis. And and that goes both ways, right? The venture, the, the founder expects its partners, its venture investors, 
to be open and honest and direct with them as well and to tell them, hey, you're not performing or you're not performing to plan. So while we might be willing to reset a financial covenant or a performance metric, it's not that that's going to come without a cost. Um, so so the, the, the listener also asks, technology companies often lack collateral uh, with high quality investors, good management team and good product. How often are the worst defaults seen? A couple of different questions there, right? So, so your listener's entirely right. Sometimes the technology companies lack collateral. Uh, sometimes these deals are structured as what we will call a negative pledge. For example, if I'm right that the venture lending in the first instance is made first and foremost on strength of investors, although at the very, very early stage, that may be less so. Second on the strength and track record of the management team, and then only third on the product or service. Oftentimes the company doesn't have uh, really truly property. A lot of these venture lenders used to 15, 20 years ago and 15 years ago too, um, consider themselves to be lending against the value of intellectual property, even though the value was essentially untested. But the point being that the listener is correct that oftentimes these companies don't have a true set of valuable assets. They don't have, for example, accounts receivable against which a lender can lend, uh, let alone hard assets and oftentimes not necessarily valued or uh, determined to be valuable intellectual property. They're relying on goodwill, um, et cetera, et cetera. Um, how often are the worst defaults seen? Again, we're, we're in a unique um, time in history with C-19 and there are lots and lots of defaults. Now, there's also been, uh, among some of the more prolific venture lenders, some of the venture banks for sure, public dissemination in response to the defaults that we're currently experiencing around, for example, payment deferrals. Um, so if you're an early stage company with a venture loan on your books and you're in a position where you are unable to perform, again, communicate, call your venture lender, call your relationship person and say, look, I can't perform. I think I'm gonna be here for at least three or six months and ask for a payment deferral. The worst thing that happens is they say no. The most likely scenario, again, if I'm right that the lender wants a performing loan, is they're going to have to grin and bear it. They're going to have to be flexible and say, okay, we know, our, you know, others in our portfolio, our, lend, our loan portfolio, likewise are experiencing defaults. Let's work with you and structure for you a, a repayment sort of program that works for the company. Uh, the, the listener also asks about interest rates, which is a good um, question for a series A or a series B. Um, here too, and I, and I said at the outset that that one size does not fit all. That is that, that banks and non-regulated lenders are not the same. Their structures can be different. That is the structures that they bring to a venture loan can be different, including around financial covenants, including around collateral, that is the inclusion or the exclusion of intellectual property, and certainly around pricing. Um, and pricing includes both what we sometimes call the coupon or the interest rate. It also includes warrant coverage. And it's important when a company is considering venture lending that it consider all of those things, including the all-in cost of that capital. There might be funds uh, that are uh, commitment fees, that are fees that get paid up front. There might be anniversary fees. There might be unused fees. There might be back-end fees, a final payment or a prepayment. And then, of course, there's the very simple feature of the interest rate 
but all of those things and the warrant coverage, while the, and I would suggest to you the warrant coverage is generally small and often a red herring and not something about which founders should be deeply concerned, um, there is the interest rate. Uh, but banks and venture non-bank venture lenders charge different rates. And it's not so much around whether you're a Series A or a Series B, although that certainly can uh, uh, dictate some version of those terms um, because that uh, is reflective of a risk profile. That is, the earlier a company is in its life cycle, the riskier it is for a venture lender. And so therefore they will price the venture loan accordingly. But typically from banks these days, uh, an early stage company can expect a venture loan that runs in the range of the prime rate, uh, just the prime rate or the prime rate plus up to three, four, five percent, keeping in mind that what is the prime rate uh, A changes with some regularity and B, there's the prime rate that's published in the Wall Street Journal, but then there's also what a particular bank defines as its own prime rate, which may or may not be that same rate. So a company needs to be careful about what does prime rate mean, prime rate, or is it the bank's own definition of prime rate? A non-bank lender, generally cost of capital is going to be higher. And so a lender, a borrower rather, can expect um, from a non-bank lender interest rates in the range of prime plus five to nine percent. In, in each case, though, to the extent that that credit facility, that venture loan is structured as a term loan, which is often how they are structured. There might be a revolver included as well, but the term loan is somewhere between two, three, um, four year kinds of terms. Again, it's important for your listeners to appreciate that, that one size uh, is not uh, the same for both banks and non-bank venture lenders. Hopefully that answers your listeners' questions. Definitely, I think that was a great answer. And I'll ask you one last question and then we'll wrap it up. So this is the question I try to ask every speaker of mine. Uh, what's your advice for someone who's just beginning his or her journey in the startup world? What should he or she do? First three steps to reach this, the first check from the investor. That's a great question. Um, look, I'm a big believer that we uh, stay connected to the network. Um, you know, you and I, Constantine, as you know, found each other through LinkedIn, and this is not a this is not an advertisement for LinkedIn. But I'm a big believer in my business life in the value of LinkedIn for the ease of ability to build and create and then stay connected to the network. Uh, why? Because some of your founders are B-school graduates, for example, and in staying connected from the days of business school with the network that they established in business school, they can follow their, their cohort and see what they are doing and learn from them and develop opportunities um, from them. Uh, in, in my view, there is little substitute in the business world, in the professional world, um, greater than staying connected to the network. Um, next. Uh, and look, this is a personal one, but but I think it's really important and I think it resonates with your um, listener set as well. Never be the smartest guy in the room. So 
Great to be smart, great to be well-informed, great to be well-read, great to develop your own subject matter expertise for sure. That is, what, do, what am I building that I think we are doing better than anybody else for sure? Every entrepreneur should, be, should have that mindset. But when I say never be the smartest guy in the room, what I really mean is surround yourself with smarter people who challenge you to be ever more successful, to think more broadly, to, to, think, to, to, to develop those big, hairy, audacious goals. Not unrealistic goals, but to challenge the norm. Um, and then the, the last is related to the second, and that is stay curious. Right, so we we all have a pretty good idea of where we're good, where we're even we even might be the best in the world. Um, but either in sleep or watching something on television or reading something on the internet or from a colleague or uh, or even from someone we don't necessarily like, we often learn um, we learn really important things that can spur us on to to greater things, um, and so. That, those are mine. Stay connected to the network, never be the smartest guy in the room, and stay curious. And that's great advice. I think this episode was great. Tons of great, useful information on venture lending, venture debt. I think this was really interesting. So thanks, Troy, again for coming up, for sharing your experience and knowledge in this field. Really appreciate it. Happy to do it. Thanks for having me, Constantine. Thank you. Have a good day.